Welcome to the Trajectory Africa. On this episode, track two, our guest artist is Dr. Dotun Olowaparoku. Dotun is a prolifically curious stalwart of the African tech ecosystem who has one of the most complete set of venture experiences I've ever encountered. He's been a founder and investor both in Africa and the UK, and he has a PhD in environmental management. Dotun's most recent role was as the Associate Investment Director with Novastar Ventures, but he was also a venture partner with Potential VC in the UK, the founder and managing partner of Growth Lab, formerly Starta, a platform making it easier to build, discover, and track high-growth business opportunities in Africa, the founder of Meals.co.uk, a food delivery service, and last but not least, the executive producer and host of Building the Future podcast which features conversations with innovators, entrepreneurs, investors, and thought leaders who are shaping Africa's future. Dotun and I spoke about his circuitous journey to becoming an Africa-focused investor, what his initial assumptions and mental models were when he started investing, what changed when he gained investing experience, how he uses external trend data to make decisions, the impact of governance on innovation, and why now is an unprecedented time for Africans to solve African problems. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Dr. Dodson, welcome to the Trajectory Africa. It's a real honor to have you here for track two. It's a pleasure, Tayo. Um, I'm super glad that you're starting this podcast and also privileged that you invited me to the show. Yeah, I'm, I'm, one of the reasons I'm really excited to have you is that, I don't know if you remember, but I was a relatively early fan of Building the Future. <laughs> Actually, I think part of the reason we connected is because I was somewhat insistent on providing you feedback on what I enjoyed about your storytelling and insights. Yes, I wouldn't forget that. You are one of my, actually one of my major cheerleaders. I would be in the future podcast at the, at the beginning. Because podcast is such a, sometimes it could be lonely stuff. You, you, you send it out there, you don't know who is listening and what feedback they have. It's unlike blogs where people can easily write comments. Uh, podcast is something very intimate and people don't normally sometimes give feedback. And you reached out and you're always giving regular, very good feedback, encouraging. I was just really, really blessed by that, by your support. And um, I'm so happy that you are also starting your podcast and, and I'm here to support as much as possible as well. Yeah, it was a real pleasure because it was uh, it was just I learned so much listening to those stories. So I was happy to provide that feedback and to be supportive. And of course, I'm thrilled that you're here. And and so in that case, it, it's almost like a very full circle moment. And actually, I think the last time I saw you in person, we can believe we're talking about when we're able to see people in person. But the last time I saw you in person was actually just outside of Nairobi, I think at Novastar. Yes, actually, I've forgotten about that. I was thinking maybe it would be Paris, but I think you saw me in Nairobi, so yes. So we, we, we've always been seen in different cities. And, <laughs> and I also remember, actually, the first time I met you in person was in Cape Town, right? Right. And you were, you were like flying the wall for one of the podcast episodes that I was having with Bastian. And you came into the room, and it was really great. And you were just there listening and we had a live podcast, myself and Bastian, who found co-founder of Hiroko. And you were there. And then you it was quite interesting. I can remember that vividly. And then we met in Paris, of course, again, Nairobi, which I seem to have forgotten now for some reason. Yeah, we've definitely had a history <laughs> of meeting in far-flung cities. But yeah, that session with Bastian really had a, an impact on me because I'd never, obviously never been part of a, a live podcast recording. And the story he told was so robust. It was just a real privilege to be there and hear it from the quote-unquote horse's mouth. That was pretty awesome. Yes, yes. So then I guess if we're going full circle, we should do our best to start at the beginning. So let's do that. Dalton, yes. you're really well known and appreciated across African tech ecosystems, but you actually started, I guess this is an open secret, but you actually started as a scholar pursuing a PhD in the UK before you became an operator. And I think I actually saw a recording of you teaching a class for founders somewhere on YouTube, and you were saying that you didn't even want to be in business, uh, even though you came from an entrepreneurial family. So how is it that you ended up as an Africa-focused VC? Yes, good. Um Yes, thanks for, for laying that, uh, that, the architecture of my story. You're right. I, I started life, I actually used to tell, tell people that I, I am an accidental entrepreneur. 
not so much of an accidental investor because that was deliberate, but I, I, I stumbled into entrepreneurship. Yes, I grew up in an entrepreneurial family, um, what I would say, a trading business family, and which is not unusual in Nigeria, actually. I was reading a piece of data, uh, research recently by Efina on financial inclusion in Nigeria, and they were talking about there are over 105 million adult Nigerians, and about 49% of those business people, they either trade or sell something. They, they class themselves as entrepreneurs one way or the other. And, and 75 of them are either one-man trader or one-person business, one, one, one business, and about 25% of them employ people. My family is in that 75% where my mom and dad, they do some, some trading, they do some business. And I, and I will live through that, the ups and lows and the troughs and the highs of that time of the uncertainty of revenue and income and the challenges of living in a household where your dad could be very, very rich. It could be feast or famine. Could be very, very rich for some time and then not so much later. And and didn't want to go through that. It's not something that I wanted to, to see myself uh, or my family go through that ups and downs and the uncertainty of entrepreneurship life. So I always tell my parents that I'm going to grow up and I'm going to be a, a, a doctor or I'm going to work in a proper normal, normal job. And my mom will say, well, you cannot be financially free if you're working for somebody. She will always be debating with me. I said, no, I'm going to make a lot of money anyway. I'm going to save. So I... I went to university in Nigeria, and, and one of the key things that caught my attention, I studied, by the way, marine biology in the University of Lagos. In my final year, or before my final year, I started mapping out my life, kind of. I like to write these kind of goals. And I said, I actually really want to do my master's abroad, and I want to do a PhD outside the country, and I want to have all of that before I'm 30 or something. I want to have that before I'm 40. And I want to work with... I want to do environmental uh, management and I want to really come back to Nigeria and, and address some of the environmental problems that we have there. And that was the height of the Niger Delta problem. And that was one of the biggest questions of our own time then, not, not Boko Haram or insurgency that we have now. It was Niger Delta. Environmental problem and men were just coming up. So I went to the UK. I, 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 did, I did a master's in London and I got scholarship in Bristol to do PhD in air quality management. So my life was then laid out before me that I will be an academic, I will be a scholar. And I love, I'm curious about learning, I'm curious about life, I'm curious about a lot of things. And I said, okay, actually, this is great. This is what I want to do. So I did PhD for three years after that. I was unlucky that I finished my PhD at the height of the recession. I, right. I, I submitted my PhD paper December 2009. And 2010 was when I was supposed to go into the labor market as a PhD researcher. That, that was a difficult time. I was overqualified for most jobs that I could go in as a graduate. And I was under-experienced for the jobs I could go in as an experienced person. So, so I, I ended up working as an academic because I wanted to go into the corporate initially. But I ended up working as an academic, two years in carbon management. And it was during that course that I stumbled into my startup where I discovered a gap in the market for providing logistics and delivery services for restaurants that don't typically deliver using technology because I can see the ubiquitousness of mobile technology and how we can organize drivers. And that was beginning of, that was 2012. Uber was just becoming big then. It's not even in the UK at that point. And you can connect drivers using mobile technology and you can organize that logistics rather than the restaurant having the logistics of their own. And I started that business. I didn't know anything about entrepreneurship. I didn't even know anything about startup. I remember when I was talking about the idea to one of my colleagues at the university, and she said, hey, do you know a company called Just Eat? I said, what is Just Eat? And Just Eat was the biggest platform that was doing online ordering, food ordering, takeaway ordering. They don't provide logistics. So I don't even know anything about that. <laughs> when, when I was starting. And, and I remember when I started a business, I got, I got some money from some of my friends. And I was running out of money because I was doing everything wrong that you could do. All the textbook mistake. Like I had an office which is needed, but having a telephone, landline telephone with connection in my office, a business card with my name <laughs> as a CEO, spending money on marketing, on paper marketing, by the way, on newspaper marketing. Wow. So, so you know, someone from the local newspaper approached me and said, yeah, let's do marketing. Yeah, yeah we do it. Why not? Uh, billboard in, the, in Bristol. It was just waste. But then I was lucky that I got to meet 
an investor. But we ended, up, we ended up debating because I sent an email to you and he said, your business is bad, it's going to die. And then I wrote him 10 reasons why it's wrong. And then we met over, over lunch. And his name is Doug Scott. And Doug Scott has been very instrumental in my journey. So Doug looked at me and said, hey, you, you, and I told him, when, and the story I used to tell people then is that I'm from Nigeria. I came to study here. I didn't want to be an entrepreneur, but I saw this gap and I want to solve it. And Doug invested in my business and he brought other people in. Now, that time, I don't even know anything about tech startups so much. One of my investors was asking me, do you have a deck? And I said, what is a deck? I, I don't get the lingo. What, what is a deck? <laughs> and I had to spend a lot of time reading and studying. So at night, I'll be reading TechCrunch. I'll be reading articles. I just went into the academic mode again. So studying a lot. I wrote my business plan myself. And I, and I started studying about Uber, f- funding around Series A, Series B, what, all this kind of stuff. Fast forward the story, I was able to raise a seed round between about a million dollars in the UK, a combination of angel investors and, and, and a VC uh, based in the Midlands. And the business grew, uh, but we were outcompeted by a, a worthy competition. They, they, they executed better than us. They started from the right city, London. We started from Bristol. They understood their unit economics better than us. But more importantly, the competition raised money from the right investor. They raised money from Index, and the company is called Deliveroo. So we grew well, but we couldn't match them in terms of money. But I was lucky that Just Eat, who I didn't know at the beginning then, approached me and said, hey, let's partner. So I was my business integrated into theirs to be the logistics part of their business. So they got all my restaurants and my drivers and, and, and put it in theirs. So that enabled me to exit in a way. It wasn't the best exit, it wasn't a successful exit, but it was an exit. It gave me some leverage and some runway. And that was when I started looking into Africa. And, and I ended up in Nigeria, coming to Nigeria, looking for companies to invest in. Again, Doug came into my story where he said, okay, let's do this together. And he started a fund. So that was my story from being an academic to becoming to become an entrepreneur, accidental entrepreneur, and then became an investor. Such an interesting story with all kinds of twists and turns. It's, it's like you didn't travel the quote unquote straight and narrow path to get to becoming a, an operator. It's also interesting, this theme of, so when you described how you responded to Doug's email, and he said, this business is trash, and you said, absolutely not, and here are 10 reasons why. That seems to be a common theme amongst people who are founders or innovators, is that they don't always take the first no, or even the second or third no. They'll find a way to to navigate toward what they want. And it seems to me that you actually continue to do that. So you you launched the business in the UK, found, I think, a very crafty way to exit, but then you continued. So can you talk a little bit more about what you did after you left your business? Yeah, so when I was about to leave my business, it was becoming obvious when Justin was integrating that. I can't build a business that I set out to build. So, so Doug said, okay, Dustin, what do you want to do next? And he said, he's beginning to start a, a syndicate fund, which was becoming very popular in the UK, then Potential VC, where he gets a lot of investors together, he puts his own money and they invest in startup at the early stage. And he just came back from South Africa at that time. And he was talking about, he was blown away by, his, by that exit. And he said, there are loads of things happening in Africa you're from africa you understand more than a lot of people but more than that you have a, you have a better you're in a better position you're ahead of the curve right you've raised money in the uk you've run a business in the uk you have network in the uk but then you also understand african context why don't you join my fund let's do the syndicate and then you can be be our african guy going to africa to invest in startup who are in the beginning of their journey and we can then put money and, and invest in them so that was the thesis then Again, around my experience and my, my network. And of course, dogs network as well. So say, and that sounds interesting to me. So like, yes, fine. So we, we negotiated stuff and said, so yeah, and, and I joined. So Doug and I flew to Lagos for a conference. And at the beginning, the idea was that we're going to be finding companies that needed about 100 to 150,000 pounds. Uh, we're going to uh, put money in them, but we're going to, we're going to, gap, we're going to um, catalyze the fund from the UK from investors. But the idea, where the idea started breaking down was we needed, we needed them to flip to the UK to be a UK-registered business because we know a lot of the Nigerian startups want to register in the UK or US. 
And being registered in the UK means that they can then take advantage of the SCIS, which is the Seed Enterprise Investment Scheme, which allows investors to put money in startups in the UK and you can get tax rebates as an investor up to about, I think, 40% tax rebate on whatever you put in. You can right. claim it back in your tax. If the business if the business dies within four years, I think you can even claim more. So you can claim up to about seventy percent if the business dies. That's what attracted, catalyzed a lot of angel investing in the UK. And we wanted to leverage that, but that broke down because a lot of the companies that we saw in Nigeria that we wanted to invest in, I, and I flew to Nigeria, and met a lot of people, and I saw interesting companies. They are either too early for them to be thinking about flipping to the UK at that point. And the ones that are far down the line, they fall outside. They are either already established in Delaware or on the outside of our remit. And because there's also a, a limited criteria you can use for that SEIS, it has to be companies that have, that have just started, basically. So even though it was a good experience to travel to Nigeria and see those companies and so got a lot of deal flow, it didn't fit well. Our assumption didn't fit well. So it started becoming clear that this is not something that we could we could do but at that point i already caught the bug i caught the <laughs> the, the african bug and um going to nigeria the first agenda i had actually with dog as well was we're just going to meet people we we're, we're going to go there and we're going to be asking people to say what are you doing that is interesting we want to learn how can we help we're not going to go there with so we have money and stuff we just we just what, how do we learn? So I remember the first day we landed in Lagos. And again, I'm from Nigeria. I've not been to Lagos for some time. So I was just learning new things, especially in the tech world. I was just reading about a few guys on TechCrunch. So I reached out to all of them, to most people. So people like Bosun, Inyi, Ngozi Dozi. People I just saw their names online. I reached out to them on LinkedIn and said, hey, I'm from the UK. I'm an investor. I just want to come to Lagos. It would be good to have a chat with you. And how can I, what can I learn? And how can we support? And the first day that we landed in Lagos, we hosted a, a drinks event, and it was it was amazing. We had a pink bandana on people. There was there will be pictures online that you can see where we we put bandana on people. And the idea was just learn from people, and and that was I, I emphasized this to say that on the line the line my approach in Nigeria, which is I'm here to learn and I'm here to meet people. And I'm here to broaden my network in order to find a way in which I can help. And that is the way in which I engage with a lot of people. I mean, again, we can see that in the podcast where I'm always curious about. And, I, and I'll tell you how, we, how the podcast started because of that as well. So it, it was something that we started learning. And so even when we said we're not going to do this fund anymore, I already caught the bug and I can see a pathway in which I could be of help and I could be part of this. And luckily I have some runway uh, that time I have like six months runway and I said, okay, and I agreed with my wife that I'm going to do this for six months. What, I, what do I want to do? I just want to see how I can build a community in, in, in Nigeria, Af- Africa generally and, and, and just be part of the entrepreneurship ecosystem as much as possible. And this is the analogy or the picture I have in my head. I believe that billion dollar businesses will be built in Nigeria. And my mission is to help entrepreneurs that will build those businesses. At that point, I wasn't sure that I would be one of those people that would build those businesses from scratch because I knew that I wasn't ready to move to Nigeria then. And I didn't think I have the right skill set or experience in to build something from scratch at that point. But I want to be part of people that will help entrepreneurs that will build those billion dollar business in Africa. That was the mission. And that has really been my mission for a long time. And I said that I don't want to be reading about those businesses in the UK on TechCrunch or, or Fortune magazine or Forbes and clapping for them as an audience. I want to be on the stage with those people. That's the picture I have. Africa is going to explode. Things are going to happen. Tech entrepreneurship is going to help us to be able to catalyze so many things. Growth, development, prosperity, solve a lot of problems that we can solve ourselves. And entrepreneurs are going to be rewarded for that. And I want to be part of those people that will help them to achieve it. And I want to be on the stage when that, when that is happening. So that was the mission. And I started Starter with no clear revenue point. I just want to build a community. So I started coming to Lagos, organizing drinks event, getting people to come for free to just come and have a drink and meet each other and connect people to one another. And that time what I do, my head is just thinking about how do I connect people to one another? So if I meet you, I'm already thinking about two or three people that I met recently that you should meet. Right. And, I, and by the end of our call, I just say, Tayo, you should meet the X, Y, and Z. 
And, and that was how I began to know a lot of people. So I meet them and I will ask them for their story and they would tell me how they build a business. I said, oh, this is interesting. I need to record this. And that was how this podcast started in my head. So that was my journey from that into, into what I'm doing that you met me doing. That's so interesting. I didn't know that the podcast was an organic extension of your natural inclination to get to know people and hear their stories. That's that's really brilliant. And so part of what I want to, or a lot of what I want to chat with you about today is is focused on your own personal assumptions behind why and how you invested or continue to invest in Africa, and then from the perspective of, of industry assumptions. But before we get there, could you just share a little bit about how you transitioned from, let's say, startup supporter to, quote-unquote, proper VC? So when I started Starter, which was a company I started, which was basically doing entrepreneurship development, community, consulting, that's how we make money. And the back end, people just look at Starter and the front end, they think, these guys are just doing everything for free. We're doing our content, we're releasing podcasts, we're doing newsletter. One of the fastest growing newsletter at that point. We grew to about 16,000 subscribers within a year. We were just producing the right content. And I did that for about three years, and I realized that I could continue this and still be supporting, but I don't think I'll be making the right impact because I realized that the biggest impact that you can make and the way you can make that impact is if you write a check. You write right. a check and you, you provide the capital, then other impacts can be, you, your check can actually accentuate or if not catalyze or multiply the impact that you're about to give. So there's a force multiplier that capital can give. Apart from the fact that it gives you your voice, but it also may, means that you are influential and you can also use money to drive those influence. Not in a bad way, but you can help the entrepreneur better. So I realized that at the end of the day, to achieve my goal, which is to be on the stage when Africa is popping, and the way to get there is either build a business or I write checks to the people who are building businesses. That's the way I could get there. So what I was doing was supporting, was helping, but at the end of the day, I will be a cost center to those startups because that's the way I will make money from consulting and I'll be a cost center to them. But the best way is to actually be an investor. And then I came across Novastar, which is another story on its own. I love the thesis of Novastar. They freed me to Nairobi. I met the team. I met the founder. Actually, I met the founders in the UK and just fell in love with one another. I just love the theme and love what they're doing. And, uh, and I joined. And that was how I transitioned into full-fledged institutional VC. Fantastic. And so something interesting that you highlighted is this idea that you fundamentally believe that billion-dollar businesses will be built in Nigeria. I'm going to assume on your behalf that you also think they will be built in other parts of Africa. And additionally, as anyone can hear listening to your story, you had a wealth of experience at this point. Everything from being operational to advisory, creating content, investing, even. And as you yourself pointed out, you're a prolifically curious person. So from that perspective, when you started your African VC journey, what were your core beliefs and assumptions and mental models? So again, you've mentioned that you fundamentally believe that there are billion-dollar businesses possible on the continent. So what were your core beliefs and what were you hoping to achieve? So that's a very interesting question. And I will break those core beliefs and mental model down. Starting from, actually, I'm not going to start from that, the one I quoted, which is part of it, central part of it. But I'll, I'll tell you how I arrived at that. I'm also an historic, a history buff. And if you break African history in a very, in one of the most simplistic stuff down into, and, and, and just oppose it with the world economic development. A, a lot of revolutions like the bronze or, or, or the iron age or whatever that has catalyzed economic development. I'd never had Africans really participating in it. I mean, they participated, but not as drivers. They were just carried along. And the most recent one you see is the Industrial Revolution. We had our own economic development a long time ago with Egypt or, or whether with coal mining and a lot of things that we, we were very strong at. But the, re, the most recent development, like Industrial Revolution, education in Africa, the Western education that enabled that to happen and the enlightenment that also catalyzed that to happen wasn't in Africa at that point. Right. 
even the people that started it in terms of the mathematics, uh, the, the Middle Eastern who started with mathematics, chemistry, and long time ago, that had left them uh, due to some other changes in the region, like religion. And uh, you can say similar in Africa as well. So what catalyzed industrial revolution wasn't resonating in Africa. We weren't part of that. We were just carried along. And we became the product that they were selling. For that, we became the, we either were giving them the raw material for it, which catalyzed colonialism in Africa, where raw materials was taken from the continent. Right. And the challenge in the late 19th century was, how do you, how, how can you create a viable state in Africa that would be able to maybe feed the rest of the world? And then you know, fast forward that to in the 40s and 50s and 60s, just after the Second World War, you started having a new emerging Africans coming up who are educated would not have access to that Western education, who are either maybe they were ex-slaves or they were children of ex-slaves, who have Western education. So they're having in early doctors in Nigeria, early middle class in Nigeria. And the challenge of their generation was, how do we create an African state that is self-governed, that is governed by Africans? That was, the, right. that was what they focused on. So you can talk about, about Macaulay, Kwame Nkrumah, and Nyerere, and all those guys, they, and maybe Mandela later down the line, their focus and their energy was, how do we make African to self-govern Africa? And all the bandwidth that they have then was, was that. It was economic development. And that led to a series of independence in the 60s. Then Africans are now doing stuff themselves. But at that point, we still don't have a lot of things. We still don't have, we have, we are now educated. We cannot do things ourselves. And we are building on top of that technology and stuff. But we are serious of bad luck with our governance. And if you now fast forward to what we have now, the first time in history, when you look at the evolution of technology, it is so democratized, especially internet technology, software technology, and the knowledge of it is so democratized that a guy in Kano can build a similar technology, a product, that someone in New York can build as well. Right. For the first time, right? And this, you don't have to travel before now for you to be a very, very good, maybe in the 60s, for you to be a top chemistry professor, you have to have studied abroad. You have to go to London. You have to go to maybe Cambridge or Oxford or Ivy League school to be that because that's where the knowledge is resident. That's where you can interact with your peers. But now, for you to be a top software technology, for you to be a fantastic product, you don't have to even have traveled outside Nigeria to do that because the knowledge is not democratized. And that creates an opportunity for us, for the first time in Africa, to solve problems ourselves. The problem is relevant to Africa. To solve re African-relevant problems with African-relevant solutions ourselves because we now have access to the right tools. Both mental tools because we have the knowledge and the tools to build it ourselves and that creates a lot of things we're now part of the new revolution we're not just external participants or tools we're now we can build and that was a question i had to say okay now there are so many challenges in africa before now to solve those you have to go and get expert from the uk us or even russia the challenges in africa now and, we, and there are lots of them. They create opportunity for entrepreneurs to build solutions for. And for the first time in our history, we now we can do it ourselves. Right. We can build it ourselves, especially in internet technology or, or software technology. We can do it ourselves. And I'd added to that, another stuff to in my head was, for the first time in the history of Africans, actually you and I, and, and a lot of Africans listening to it, we are the luckiest Africans in our generations. Hmm. We, for the first time in the history of the black race, we, we live longer than our forefathers. There are more Africans that live longer now than before. There are more Africans that are now more educated than ever before. More Africans are now upwardly mobile than ever before more Africans are now connected to people all over the world than ever before. And information is now widespread amongst Africans than ever before. And we can move from places to places faster than ever before. That creates a new, there's a privilege. We have, I don't know if you look at a macro, macro number, war, famine, Boko Haram, you may say, okay, that's not real for everyone. 
But if you look at the if you look at the numbers generally, there are more Africans who are living better than generations before them. And there are still more challenges. We have more challenges than ever before as well. But we now have opportunity to solve those problems ourselves using technology. And I'm a capitalist, right? And I believe that I also I'm a conscious capitalist. I believe there's a role of government that they can they can use social and, and there's a role of social enterprise to solve problems like we couldn't have solved the problem of polio without social enterprise, without social intervention. Even what we have recently, COVID, could not have been solved using capitalist intervention. However, I believe that capitalism is a tool to solve a lot of problems. And mixed up with technology, there is a place there where Africans can actually solve our problems ourselves. So that's the key foundation of my thought process. To say, yes, there is something, there's a challenge here that we can solve as an African. And I want to be part of that. Uh, and I believe that in the next maybe 10 years, the richest Africans and the most influential Africans will be the ones that have solved the most problems in a scalable way hmm. and probably using technology. The richest African in the next 10 years will not be guys that have made money from mining or guys that have made money from community or stuff like before. It'll be guys who have solved the biggest problem using technology and we're going to get there soon. My core thesis is how do I accelerate that for those guys? How do I be someone who can provide the capital and also the help to accelerate that for those entrepreneurs who want to build that future, who want to be the Africans that will solve African problems in the most African-relevant way. So that's the core of my mental model. So Dotin, this is probably one of the most elegant and inspiring set of assumptions I've heard in a long time about African investing. So you're basically arguing that it's an unprecedented time in history because of the democratization of knowledge, which enables Africans to solve their own problems because they, we, we have access to the right tools, but also the right knowledge. And people are living better than they have historically, despite the fact that there are many problems. And so they are, in fact, participants as opposed to passengers in the revolution. And as such, we can use the tools of capitalism to enrich ourselves if we elect to take the arduous journey to becoming problem solvers. And so <laughs> it's interesting. I remember this quote from Mike Tyson, and I think, uh, I don't know if he said it or not, but this is attributed to him. He basically says, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. So... Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm <laughs> so you've articulated a pretty robust case for investing in Africa, and you've actually invested in Africa. So can you share some insight from your investing experiences and talk a little bit about whether your core thesis and beliefs have been confirmed or changed as you've experienced making investments? Yes. I, I like that Mark Tyson attributed quote. Yes. You can have all of this well-articulated mental model assumptions and then when you get to the field then the reality can either change it or make you to start removing some of those assumptions and i'll tell you some of those things that i realized one of the key challenges to the assumption was the disproportionate influence of existing political structure on that stuff that i just talked about a few minutes ago right and how that can really affect either reduce acceleration of that or, or affect it in a significantly bad way. Or in some cases, accelerate it in a good way, like in the case in Rwanda. Uh, that, that is a reality. That is one of the punches that I, that, that I, that I started seeing, that, that you can have this huge lofty goals about Africa, but you can dissect Africa into different regions and they are all stuck in contrast to one another, where there are some quasi-liberty and freedom, quasi-democracy to places where there are full-reign democracy and the shades of difference in between them. And this thought process can be significantly affected depending on which part of that range that you try to apply it. So from regulation to political structure to the places where the state has been hijacked by, the, by, by warlords, <laughs> uh, places where competition has an even advantage over you where capitalism cannot actually work the way you assume it to be. So that's the punch that, and I realized actually that dream or that, that, that thought process can only apply in some states, so some countries in Africa. And we're seeing that happen, by the way. So again, this data is super important, right? It's super good that you see some of the reports by Brighter Bridges or Partech. You see that the money is going to some places. There are only a handful of countries that the, the money is going to. 
Not because there are no problems to solve in the other countries. No, there, there are no entrepreneurs there or educated people or people that don't have technology. There are. Maybe they're not as much as Nigeria, Egypt, or South Africa or Kenya. But there are lots of problems in those countries as well. Uh, example is Ethiopia, where it's the second largest population in Africa as a, apart from Nigeria. And you have lots of problems that can be solved there, but you don't have as much money going to Ethiopia as it's going to Nigeria because of some of this political stuff that we talked about. Right. So that's the punch that, that changes that. But the other bit I also saw is that the influence and the positive influence of people outside Africa as well. And it's not a punch, it's just something that, that, that I realized when being in, being in the field. that, And you can categorize it into money and talent. You have the Kenyan startup ecosystem catalyzed mostly initially by AIDS capital that became impact investment and then also a lot of expatriates. And that is a very key and good, important part of the story, even though there's a lot of pushback against it now. But it was great. I would say it was good to have that initially, to have those money coming in, those talent coming in, to kickstart the ecosystem. You need those kind of talent because that's how you can actually accelerate growth in an ecosystem where you're just starting things like putting a wood that is already burned somewhere and you want to start, you want to start a fireplace, you want to get something that's already red and put it amongst the other wood rather than just starting from start, which could be harder. Right. In Nigeria, you don't have a lot of expertise, you don't have a lot of aid investment, but what you had in Nigeria was people you call uh, like me, that you call repatriates, people who either studied abroad, lived abroad, have a network abroad, came back to Nigeria to build a business. And you needed that kind of kickstart in the ecosystem that way. So that's for the talent. But for the money, it's interesting. I, I, I've not seen this, maybe I missed it in all the reports that I read. It's good to see the growth, the capital growth in, in Africa, $1.4 billion invested in technology startups in 2020 across Africa. If you, if you remove the M&A, if you add the M&A based on brighter bridges, it goes about $2.4 billion. Now, it's interesting to know where this money is coming from. So all the investment, I can say maybe anecdotally now that over 90% of them were from the continent. Right. Including the ones that invested from the continent. So the Partec, us, Novasta, and all the, all the VCs in Africa. Most of us who raised money from outside the continent. So you can say that most of the money that is catalyzing the growth we're seeing now and the one that, that will catalyze the story that I was talking about uh, or the mental model and the assumption that would, would be from outside the continent and we needed that. However, we then need to go to the next stage, which is how do we build a long-lasting indigenous talent pool and funding pool in Africa? And we started seeing a trickle of that now with exits happening those founders are now putting money back. You started seeing, actually, see, even the ones that have not exited. I read some TechCrunch articles about funding in Africa, and you see names of existing founder, CEO, investing in companies. And you start seeing that recycle going on. So that's, that'll be the next stage. Those are the three things I, I, I would say that, I, that I've seen when I got into the ring. And then I hope that the last one will continue to be able to shape the, the startup ecosystem in the continent. Really interesting. So the, the <laughs> so if we take the ring analogy, the punch has to do with some of the external conditions or governance frameworks that are in place to different extents in, in different countries. But in terms of, I guess, the opportunities going in, those are, are around cultivating indigenous talent and funding. Now, could you maybe talk a little bit about why those two things are important. I think the answer seems, uh, maybe seems obvious, uh, but I think it would be helpful if you could kind of explain of all of the, because you mentioned that there are multiple problems to be solved. Why do you think those two are some of the most critical to focus on? Yeah, so I wouldn't say they're most critical out of all the problems to be solved. So I would separate them, actually. This is what I think about. There are problems to be solved. And this one about cultivating and growing indigenous talent and indigenous funding is one of the key things that we need to put in place to solve those problems. There's so many other problems to be solved. And you could go through a list of them. Both real problems like financial inclusion, identity, commerce, payment, health, logistics. So many problems to be solved in Africa that we can use technology to solve. However, if you want to solve them in a, more, in a sustainable way, and again, having a long arc of history here to say, if you look back into the Silicon Valley, again, people might dispute my oversimplification of this history. 
I believe that the Silicon Valley was kickstarted or seeded by a government money to some extent. And it was seeded by some, not capital money, not capitalist money. It wasn't like some Adnos VC that started investing in Intel initially. It was kind of what we call free money. And that morphed into what we see today, the, the VC ecosystem, which is now still raise money from foundations and endowments. But a lot of the money is also coming from entrepreneurs who have played the game before and have and not doing it again. But you also see that initially the ecosystem, the talent ecosystem, when it started in the 60s or even maybe 50s in the Silicon Valley, wasn't started by startup pros. It was maybe tie suit wearing guys who were coming from established companies to start a startup and then and then they build a culture. I believe in Africa, we're at that stage now where a lot of our money is coming from outside the continent and it will continue for a long time. Because to be realistic, most African countries don't have a lot of money. A lot of infrastructure is still funded from outside the continent. But we still have a lot of rich people in Africa, right? But I wouldn't expect them to be the one that will seed or catalyze the startup ecosystem as we know it today. Because that was not even the case in America either. It wasn't the billionaires that kickstarted the startup ecosystem in America. The, the startup ecosystem started <laughs> built millionaires who now came back, billionaires who now came back to invest. So billionaires, I wouldn't expect people like Dangote, Mosepe, or startup or a few other guys like that in Africa to be doing startups. So, but what I wanted to see happen is the money that is coming now from outside the continent, that proportion compared to the money from the continent, especially from people who have been successful and who are throwing the dice again, that proportion dynamics will start changing gradually where maybe now it's about 90% or 95% and it's start decreasing to about 70% or thereabout. Why is that important? It is important because it's an indication of success. It's an indication of progress because money is one of the best indication of business success is money, how much money you're making and how much money you're able to, to, to have to be able to, to solve more problems. So when you have entrepreneurs exiting and becoming liquid and investing and starting a fund and catalyzing a fund, then you are seeing that, that, that is indication of success. And that will start right. breeding two, three generations of African entrepreneurs and talent. And, and then lastly, I'll say, when I graduated from Nigeria University Unilag in in the early 2000s, there are three viable industries you could go to as a graduate to get a job that will pay you well. They are banking, oil and gas, and telecommunications. Right. Those are the three things. Those are the options. I think now it's radically changed. A lot of people are graduating now and thinking, I want to work in a startup. I want to work in Flutterwave. I want to work at Paystack. I want to work at TeamUpt. They, they, they're thinking about that now. And or they, I want to build a company like Shola Built as well. So that's an option. It's a viable, good option. And the more we see that, the more we have more talent, liquidity of talent to solve more problems for us. Really astute. So the idea is not necessarily that we're solving for talent and funding. It's just that talent and funding are enablers to solve some of the broader problems that you mentioned, which makes complete sense. And the idea that you are now expanding opportunity beyond telecoms and oil and gas and banking to include startups is, is an interesting one because I think historically the, let's say the branding around entrepreneurship on the continent was not good. So if you were to start a hashtag be like Shola, you know, 10 years ago, your parents would be like, you mean you want to be unemployed? So this idea of creating more opportunities for talented people, I think is an important one. But I think your perspective on not expecting high net worth Africans to see the ecosystem may be a bit of a hot take. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, but I'm, I'm curious to understand. I mean, I understand that the, the argument is basically that's not what has happened historically. But the argument or the counter argument is that there are challenges in terms of expectations. There has been a lot of conversation around bias and investing and such around managing external funds. So what would your perspective on that be? Is there something to manage? And if so, what's the best way to go about that? You mean to manage external fund that is coming out of the continent? Exactly. So the, the assumption is that if the capital is coming from outside, that the motivations for investing, the intentions to investing, who is enriched by investing, maybe challenges for people on the continent. That, that is the argument. So the question is, do you think that these challenges to managing external capital are valid? And if so, how would you go about navigating them? Yes and no. 
Yes, yes, there will be additional complexities of managing external funds because some of the people providing it don't have the context. But there's always, always expectation and additional expectation that is required of a fund manager in terms of managing a fund. A friend of mine just told me recently, who is just raising a fund, he said, there is a huge difference between being an investment manager and being a fund manager. Being an investment manager, you are allocating capital, identifying companies to invest in, uh, building relationship, and you can even be good at getting the right company to invest in and getting returns. But it's whole different if you're a fund manager. A fund manager is managing a lot of interest, managing the fund itself. And, and it comes with a lot of reporting, a lot of compliance, a lot of relationship management, expectation management and stuff. And, and that should be required whether the person is coming from Africa or outside Africa. However, I, I think you're right in the sense that if you're getting your money from an endowment fund who don't have any context about Africa and they, there is an additional complexities in terms of how you explain it, that, that to them. Assuming they are in. Before they even get in, that was the challenge that we had when I was trying to raise a fund was you have to sell Africa first. You have to get them to understand Africa, opportunity, the challenge, and entrepreneurs that are coming out of the continent and how we can be part of this without solving problems for them and how we can invest. And, and also talk about exit and returns. Assuming you go past that and they get investors in, actually they have some fundamental belief about what you're doing or they believe in you, then managing relationship with them should not be too different. Maybe it's a bit of slight different, but it's not be too different from any LPs who is African-based as well. The only thing will be context, and, and that is the work of a fund manager, to always provide that context, to always be communicating with their, with their LPs, to always give them the right context, even before any problem comes up. And, and I wouldn't think that it, is, it would be too complex compared to someone, again, as there's, I, don't have, I don't have any data to this, where I can look at A-B testing, someone who raised money only from the continent versus another who raise money from outside the continent whether they have different challenges. I think that's a basic thing that both of them will have to do anyway, which is you have to manage expectations and manage your LP. The last thing I'll say to this is being an investor, a VC especially, so when I say investor, I'm talking about institutional VC who raise a close fund. It's, it's an interesting job. It's an interesting proposition because you don't know whether you're successful until after about 10 years. <laughs> right. You don't really know. So you you could you could have all these multiples in terms of fund return multiples on your portfolio paper and say, startup we invested in a hundred hundred dollar. They are now worth five hundred million dollars. So we have five hundred or whatever, five thousand X or fifty thousand X, whatever. We have that. But that could turn to zero tomorrow. <laughs> until you have the cash. You don't, you don't know you're successful. And most right. of the cash don't come in until after 10 years. You, you, actually, you could have one of the company who gives you 20x, but has not returned the fund. And so you have 20x on one, and all the other ones go to go, go uh, bad. So you have 20x, yeah, which is good, but then the others are bad. So it's, it's a difficult proposition. That's why it's a bit complex to be able to manage expectations. But the most important you have to do as an investor or as a fund manager is to choose the right LP that aligns with you and believe in your thesis. Yeah, as someone who has absolutely not raised money from LPs, I would still use my uneducated opinion to confirm <laughs> what you suggested. In doing the research for Chasing Outliers, which is a report I co-published in January, that point came out quite strongly that a lot of the so investing is a relational business and a lot of the game actually is finding the right people the right people being the right founders the right lps the right gps and so a lot of the challenge or a significant part of the challenge to navigating these funds would have to come down to whether or not you can quote unquote to your point sell africa first and and get people to understand deeply what the opportunity is and so you'd mentioned uh, a little bit ago the idea that data is really really important and i think part of the reason why data is important because it contributes to the richness of of understanding but as a vc in your experience and you mentioned some of the the play who have contributed to our understanding of capital flows to different countries and sectors, Brighter, Disrupt, WeTracker, Partech, etc. How, how do you use that data? What does it mean to you as an investor? Interesting question. So we, and I'll talk from my own personal perspective and also maybe to some extent how uh, we use it at Novastar. So for us, it's 
it's a macro indicator of what is happening and the growth of the funding ecosystem and, and, and where the money is going to, which confirms to some extent this is around country-specific, actually city-specific, that entrepreneurs congregate around geographical location and serendipity happen when they come together that way. And you can see the power law happening there where most money is going to the same place. So that the data confirms that, that assumption. But it also the data confirms that it, it helps us or me personally to identify the gaps where there are still funding gaps, both in terms of stages and and capital and then checks that is going to places and also the type of investor and type of entrepreneur. So you can see see the huge disparity between male and female founder and money going to, to, to male or female founders. But the data confirms that in a significant way and it shows or highlights or accentuates that gap. And, and so for me, thinking about what I'm doing as or what I'm doing at post Star, I can see gaps. Where can money go to in a way that it will make more impact? And some of it could be counterintuitive. So when I say gaps, not necessarily mean that, okay, it's money. We don't have enough money in AI and machine learning startup. Therefore, I should put my money there. Uh, not really. Actually, I see money going to fintech and I see that and I said, okay, there is a lot to still build in fintech because that creates the foundation infrastructure for in, on which a lot of startups can build uh, on top of. Whether it is of logistics, you can build on top of that payment infrastructure or fintech infrastructure and financial inclusion infrastructure. And that data is showing that. It's showing that money is going there, even though we saw that in the news, but you can see that. But then you cannot uh, deep dive more into the data to see where in a sector is the money going to, which, which aspect of that sector is it going into. And so that's where I use that data. But I must confess that uh, a lot of time I, I just read the headlines of those reports. And then rather than reading everything in its entirety, I zone in on the aspect that is important to me based on some assumptions that I have, whether the data disproves that assumption or confirms it. And if it does, if it, whichever way, I would then deep dive into that, into that specific ones. But I also believe some other people use it in different ways. They may use it to identify co-investor, co-investment opportunities or, or gaps that, I, that I've said. But for me, it's just confirming what I think, some of my assumptions and where I should be focusing a lot of my mental energy. That makes a lot of sense. So it's almost like you use the data uh, as a heat map, uh, both to understand where emphasis is being placed and where it might not be placed, but then also as a check on your own assumptions about where emphasis should be placed or, or not placed. That makes a lot of sense. So you, you mentioned that you're in a transition, which is always an interesting mental and emotional state to be. So we've talked about what your starting assumptions were, how they've been confirmed or disconfirmed, and how you, you've, you've used data. But reflecting on your journey before and looking toward a, a transition post-Novastar, what questions remain unanswered for you or problems remained unfixed? So when you're taking your evening walks for reflection, what are you still noodling on and what might you maybe potentially want to jump into going forward? I started thinking a lot. Actually, maybe I've started doing that in the last one and a half years, thinking a lot about financial services as the bedrock for economic development and enabling that is the we catalyze economic development on a wider scale. And that was before the fintech craze, which is all over the world, not just Africa though. So I'm thinking a lot about what does it mean if most people in Nigeria, for example, not only have bank accounts, but have access to financial services. Right. And the basic of them could be credit, right? What does that mean at scale? And affordable credit, by the way, not not predictory credit. And I looked at it and I said, okay, the mental model for me is that to one of the key aspects of, of economic development is consumption. That's one of the key metrics and it's consumption right. that people are able to buy. Consumption is a factor of buying power of people and buying power is a factor of income and access to credit. What, what we don't normally intuitively recognizes that there are more credits in the world than actual money that people have. Right. So a lot of consumption in the world is done through credit. So 
what will happen if you have more consumption, which again catalyzes production? Because when you have high demand of consumption, then it's a factor of the fact that you have production, and production means industrial development, it means more jobs, it means more entrepreneurs, it means economic development in the society or in the place where those things is happening, the community where that industry is, where they're producing, and you have ancillary, pro uh, ancillary companies around that as well. So a simple explanation of that is Ford. Uh, Ford catalyzes growth by saying, actually, I can't, what will happen if I make cars affordable to the people that are manufacturing it? It means that I'll have more people that can buy my car. And then it catalyzes a lot of things. It's, it's a virtual cycle, basically, rather than just producing cars for a very small amount of people. And then in, so that way, it increases consumption. In Africa, we don't have enough consumption and we don't have enough production. This is my own assumption because we don't have enough consumption. We don't have enough consumption because people don't have enough income and a lot of people don't have access to financial services or credit. In the UK, the housing market is catalyzed by mortgage, the established mortgage industry. Most people in the UK cannot afford to buy their own house. Right. A lot of people in the UK cannot afford to buy their own car. But there are financial services that enable you to do that. Actually, a lot of people in the UK cannot afford to buy their own phone, right? Or they cannot afford that iPhone that they are using. But there is a financial service system in place that enables them to be able to afford it because they provide the credit. So I started thinking a lot about that. I said, what does it mean to provide financial services to most Africans at a basic level? Which is A, identity, solve the identity problem, banking services, and financial, and, and financial services, which include credit. That will catalyze so many things. That will catalyze. That will means that this woman who has been trading $100 every week, every month in a small market, cannot have now access to $300 one working capital, therefore be able to afford more, be able to buy more and make more money, and be able to send our children to school and, and buy more stuff. Buying that stuff then has this effect in the, in, in the economy because there's more consumption going on, because you're able to provide this amount with affordable credit. A lot of people have been solving that in different ways with microfinance institutions and some stuff that are going on, which through, especially through aid and through impact investing, which are most credit. But what would it mean if we do that using technology, startup mentality that we have at scale and solve it in an innovative way rather than just small scale MFI? What I mean to create the banks that Africans can actually access in a good way that is affordable, that is accessible and that is relevant for them and provide the right credit for them. And that's what has been taking a lot of my attention these days. And I've been thinking about that before. I, we, I started days at Novaster. Our last word at Novaster was to invest in a company called TeamUpt. We were solving that problem directly, by the way. And I was able to lead that around because I've been thinking about that problem. Our thesis has been in my head, and I've read a lot of papers around it. So when I met the founder, I, it clicked to me that this guy is, trying, is solving that problem. This company is solving the problem the way I've envisioned it. So I worked with them, leading the round. And hopefully before this podcast comes out, we would have announced it. <laughs> we will announce it in a week or two. But because I was involved in that and I was super glad that I was involved in that deal and, and catalyzed around, it enabled me to be able to deep dive into that problem in a good way, uh, but through the diligence and through reading around it. And I think that's something I would love to see more of. I want to be part of that kind of stuff more. How do we catalyze financial inclusion, financial services for most Africans? There are 55 million or about 60 million Nigerians that don't have bank account. How do we solve that? And there are 500 million Africans that don't have access to financial services. How do we solve that? Fascinating. So does that mean that... I'm not an economist, but from an <laughs> from the perspective of economic development, does that mean that you're making an argument for, let's say, the traditional understanding of, of economic development, which is something the effect of you go from primary industry like agriculture to manufacturing, which then unlocks consumption? Are you making an argument? I think that's uh, similar to what Efosa Joma at Harvard is saying which is that you can unlock non-consumption by, by uh, creating uh, market-creating innovations? Or are you making an argument that consumption is already happening, but you need to use technology to lower the cost and defragment, or none of the above? Actually, I said it's the combination of the EFOSA's argument, which is you need to address non-consumption to innovative products and services and through innovative entrepreneurship. That was the core of the argument. Because when you do that... 
you and I think they were arguing against government as the main way in which you can unlock economic development. They were arguing that historically entrepreneurship had been the way the way to unlock economic development. So I totally agree with that. The additional argument I was trying to make is there is desire for that consumption now. There is aspiration for that consumption. And you don't even need to create something new that people should be able to consume anyway. What we need to accelerate, so and, and entrepreneurship should be creating that not consumption. You should be building products and services that are relevant to the people. But one of the best ways in which you can make them to be able to afford it or consume it is by providing basic financial services for them. One of the key pillars of that is affordable credit. Because credit is predicated on this assumption that tomorrow is better than today. That I can borrow from my future in order for me to consume what I need today, either to satisfy me and just be happy or to catalyze that future because then I'm borrowing to create an asset that will generate income for me in the future. Either way is okay, right? But the, the most important one is where you, you borrow money f- from the future in order for you to build your affordability in the future. And that is the basis of investment. So you, how do we do that at a micro level and, and, and catalyze that for people at the moment and such that when you do that not just for their own personal satisfaction and gratification but you are now enabling production and a classic example of that is the solar industry in east africa where mcopa and the rice say okay we're building these solar panels solar home systems but people can't afford it okay how do we solve that let's create financial services for them where they can they get a system but they pay back over a period of time using their mobile phone credit and then they catalyze production by enabling consumption using credit. So that's a classic example of that assumption. Right. So not to oversimplify the premise, but the idea is that credit enables consumption partially because you assume that tomorrow will be better than today, but it also accommodates the realities of earning patterns as well. So yes. you can consume bit by bit, a little bit at a, at a time. Yes. So, Dotun, this has been a, a really amazing, instructive, inspiring conversation. But I suppose, uh, as they say, all good things must come to an end. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I want to wrap up with uh, the Trajectory Africa signature questions. So the first one is, one of the basic premises here is that we're trying to piece together the, the, the trajectory of African tech and VC bit by bit. And so the first question is, where do you think we're heading and what are the key indicators? And the second question is, the other thing that we're trying to do here is to crowdsource the quote-unquote soundtrack to African tech. So I'd like you to share with me the track that you're contributing and why you picked it. Oh, that'll be a difficult one for me because <laughs> I'm I'm super eclectic in my music taste and, and I don't even know which one's my favorite, but I'll take a gamble on that. But let me start with the first question, where we're heading. I think a lot of indication shows that we are heading towards, there's progress and that we're heading towards that growth, but there's going to be an imminent and a very good clash between two classes of opinions and people and worldview, which is the people who believe that Africa's growth can be catalyzed using economic development, using technology innovation, and the whole guard of the political class who, who believe in the control of innovation. And we know this was, I've heard this happened before, and we know how that, what, what happens. Innovation, most of the time, wins. And I hope that battle will be done quickly. There has been a lot of pushback, and as you can see examples in Nigeria, and not just in Nigeria, maybe in India as well, so in, in places uh, where innovation has been, the whole political class will derive their power from control, fight back. And we're going to see that clash over time. But I'm hoping that innovation wins, and innovation wins quickly, and where we start having innovative entrepreneurs in positions of power. And, and, and being government and, and shaping policies and being in the government house as well. We caveat that capitalism cannot solve our problems, so we don't want full, full hot blood capitalism and, as well, but innovative thinking in governance, and we, we need that. And that's where I think, personally, we'll be heading to. In terms of track, 
there are lots of songs in my head, uh, <laughs> but the one I can zero in on is, and not because of any message they sing, but it's just because of the song itself, and, and I love it, is Exodus by Bob Marley. But a particular one, and if anyone is listening to this, you can go and search it on Spotify. But it was the last live performance of Bob Marley in, I think, in late 1970s at Stanley. Um, and Exodus, that song itself was the last song of the of that of that concert. So probably maybe the last song that Bob Marley sang in front of people, our audience. It was so good. It was again the message of the song and, and that stuff. But it was towards the end of the song when uh, one of his crew members was then mentioning the names of everyone involved. So Bob Marley, everyone, and the Whalers, everyone, and brother blah blah, blah on the keyboard, brother this on the on the jazz, and it's and you can see that it's a, it's a teamwork. It's a lot of things that 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 song was beautifully put together. But I can only imagine the performance. It wasn't recorded actually in video. It was somebody actually they discovered the, the audio later, a long time after he died. And I can only imagine the energy on the stage. And that encapsulates what is happening in Africa now. Right. It's a combination of a lot of people. And it's a movement of people. But it's but the whole piece is being put together by different people leading the song, beating the drums and bass and guitars and stuff. And I think we're we're going somewhere with that. That's beautiful, Dotun. I, I really appreciate the analogy behind creating a composition in community as kind of inspiration for what's happening in multiple African ecosystems. Very well, elegantly stated. And then officially, Dr. Dotun prescribes innovation winning quickly. <laughs> so I think... <laughs> So thank you so much, Dotun, for joining me for track two of the Trajectory Africa. This has been, thank you. It's been as amazing as I expected. Thanks also to those of you who are listening. I hope you'll join us for track three. We'll be taking a hard look at how to thoughtfully size African consumer markets. And you can find us everywhere you listen to podcasts. And I hope you'll join us again. 